in a moment, I will read the passage for this morning, which is John 12, verses 20 through 26. But first, please pray with me. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Please give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and the strength to follow on the path you set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. John 12. Now, among those who went up to, the, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Geneva. You may notice my voice is a little deeper today, and uh, I have some sort of upper respiratory thing, but it's not COVID. Don't worry about that. Speaking of COVID, that goes right into my sermon. Uh, a few years ago, when COVID hit, I was out of work, and uh, I gave me the opportunity to spend some time with a friend um, many of you have seen him. His name's Matt. He plays cello with us sometimes. Um, to spend some time with him at his farm out in Blue Mounds. And uh, I lived out there with him for a spring and part of the summer. And during that time, I was introduced to gardening. And what a pleasure that is. You know, at the end of winter, you plant these dry little tiny seeds into soil and over time you see what amazing fruit results from that little tiny seed. I'll have to say it also gives you a free workout which was good for me. I needed that too. Planting like that seeds and seeing them grow into great fruit is only natural but we see in this passage that what Jesus teaches us about having successful lives, real success in God's mind, actually cuts against the grain for us. It feels very unnatural. Jesus teaches us in this passage that to have true success, we must be willing to follow Jesus by dying to ourselves and serving him with all that we are and have. Up to the point which was read to us in John's Gospel just now, the focus has largely been 
on Jesus' ministry and teaching to the people of Israel. But now here in the passage we just read, we see that John mentions the Greeks who were drawn to the Jewish Passover worship. And these Greeks wanted to see Jesus too. It's an important detail because we've come to a pivot point in John's gospel. John is tipping us off that the work that Jesus is about to accomplish will be for the benefit of the whole world, not just the Jews. The crowd waving branches is shouting that Jesus is king of the Jews. But we know he's more than that. So when Jesus hears that the Greeks want to see him, he gives a peculiar response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What he's about to accomplish will be the most important and glorious thing of all that he does. And it will be for everyone in the world, not just the Jews. And what will he do? Jesus gets right to the point. And the following chapters are his explanation and preparation of the disciples for what is about to come. He will sacrifice his own life on the cross. The crucifixion is the ultimate display of the glory of God, something that's scandalous to the Jewish concept of Messiah and absurd to Greek philosophy. In the minds of Jews, the Messiah King was not expected to die, but rather to conquer Israel's enemies. In their minds, for the Messiah to die and be buried would be an abject failure, a sign of defeat, not of success. But this is not the way Jesus sees it. In fact, we see that throughout Scripture, God often upsets people's expectations about how the world should work. He turns things upside down. God chooses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. In our men's Bible study here at Geneva, we've been, um, we've been looking at the book of Judges, how God accomplished deliverance for Israel through people who are not the winners in our way of thinking. Back then, the judge Deborah, who was a woman, would not have been considered a winner because she was a woman. Gideon was one of the poorest and from the least powerful families in the tribes of Israel. And that mighty man, Samson, he was morally and spiritually weak and misguided. We could also look at Abraham and Sarah in Genesis when they were way too old to have children, way too old, God gave them Isaac. Or think of the great King David. He was descended from a woman who came from that detested Moabite nation. And he also came from a Canaanite prostitute. God reveals his goodness and greatness to us in unexpected ways. So Jesus is saying that he has to die to be successful, to achieve what he needs to do, what we need him to do for us, in order to conquer death for us, eternal suffering. He needs to die. 
And that leads to his next statement. No longer about himself, but about us. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, he's using some strong language here, so let's zoom in on this for a second. Let's look at what Jesus means by the word life. It's actually two words that John is using in Greek. Sika and zoe. Sika is the word with broader meaning in the New Testament. It has a broader meaning than just life. It means, you could say, the self. And from that, we get our English word psychology. Suke is the word translated as life in the beginning of verse 25. So we read, the one who loves his life. You could read, the one who loves his suke. And now what's this about hating your life? Well, here's what's going on. Jesus is speaking in a Jewish idiom using absolutes in a literal way, but in order to draw contrast and add emphasis to his point. It's not that you should have feelings of hatred for your life or that it's wrong to love your life. The point Jesus is making could be worded this way. Whoever delights in themselves and lives for themselves in this world more than God will lose themselves. Whoever thinks so little of themselves and so much of God that they are willing to sacrifice it all for God will keep it for eternal life. John Stott paraphrases a similar teaching of Jesus found in Mark 8, and he does so this way. Whoever's determined to hold on to themselves and live for themselves will lose themselves. But whoever's willing to die, to lose themselves, to give themselves away in the service of the gospel will, in the moment of complete abandon, find themselves and discover their true identity. So success, according to Jesus, is not about self-fulfillment. Instead, it actually requires self-denial. In order for Jesus to succeed in his mission to save us, he must give up his very life. And he says that if we also are going to be successful in a truly lasting sense, we must have our priorities straight on this point also. We must be willing to sacrifice everything we have for him. He must be the object of our greatest devotion and love. The Bible commentator Bruce Milne puts it this way. Fruitfulness is costly. It's in dying that we become life givers. Through a combination of inward struggles, trying circumstances, opposition from the enemies of the gospel, and our wrestling with God-permitted weaknesses, we, like Paul, are to learn to die every day. The seed must perish for the harvest to be produced. This kind of self-denial that leads to the kind of success that Jesus is talking about collides head-on with what we in our hearts want, doesn't it? It also collides with what the world around us says it means to be successful. We're told again and again, in a myriad of ways, that self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment is the measure of our success. 
that if we don't have dreams for ourselves and manage to achieve them, our life is less than it should be. The Oscars paint a picture of this for us every year, or just about every year, where fancy-dressed celebrities gather together under the watching eyes of millions of viewers to receive accolades as they applaud each other for their achievements. This picture of success may be the narcissist's dream, whose fundamental life goal is to promote. And it was hard to miss last year, wasn't it, when Will Smith and his face slap helped us to see that achieving your dreams doesn't necessarily make you happy. By contrast, Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that the poor in spirit, those who mourn for their sin, those who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and are reviled and persecuted on account of Jesus. These people are blessed and are the ones who should rejoice and be glad. That's a very different measure of success. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's what Jesus is teaching us. True success isn't about self-fulfillment. It involves self-denial. It's not just any kind of self-denial, though. To be truly successful, Jesus says we need to follow him. And following Jesus means serving him with our whole lives, with all that we are and have, our whole selves. Jesus says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Even though Jesus is our Lord and Master, he served us. And to the point of a humiliating death, an excruciating death. So it's only fitting that we should serve him in return. And he'll say soon after this, in chapter 13, a servant is not greater than his master. Let me bring it home a little now. <clears throat> For a long time, being a follower of Jesus in our culture didn't seem like much of a sacrifice. Our culture, as with the rest of the Western world, embraced Christianity. But in Madison today, being a follower of Jesus is becoming less and less comfortable, isn't it? Our culture has been moving further and further away from its friendliness toward biblical and historic Christian beliefs. And in some corners of public life, there's even hostility. I'm finding it helpful to hear from Christians in other parts of the world who have been facing hostility from their prevailing culture longer than we have. They've got some helpful insights into how we can respond to the challenges we now face as followers of Christ here. Mark Sayers, a pastor and author in Melbourne, talks about how Christians in the liberal democracies of the Western world are in a moment of adaptive change. In liberal democracies like ours, followers of Jesus have long been able to hold their beliefs without fear of discrimination. But that kind of religious tolerance is fading. On many university campuses, diversity of thought is being shouted down and stifled, not encouraged. Christians may even find 
that they're hitting glass ceilings or being forced out of their positions because of their beliefs. For centuries, Christians enjoyed positions of power and achievement, and we have been imperialistic in our ability to push our beliefs on others. Having lost that advantage, there's a strong temptation now to try to hang on to power, but in an angular way, being resentful and passive-aggressive toward those that seek to marginalize us and our worldview. The challenge is to ground our identity more firmly in Christ and seek to be like him, choosing to serve others from a position of weakness. I believe God is using this to humble the church and bring us to repentance for the way we have abused the power we have had. If we do that in the process of God, because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Speaking personally now, dying to myself and the search for success on the world's terms has neither been an easy or a straight or linear process. My life as an orchestra musician has given me ample experiences to work this out personally. The competition for others, with others for work in music is fierce. That's one thing. And the subjectivity of the selection process is another thing. In music and other arts, judgments of an artist's skill are subjective, and decisions affecting our livelihoods are often tinged with favoritism. On top of that, the prevailing religious beliefs in the community are often anti-Christian. So when I was illegally denied tenure in my job in Sweden 15 years ago, I faced a crushing decision. Do I fight a legal battle to defend my rights and cling to the success and financial stability I had worked and competed for so long to achieve? Or do I leave it in God's hands to provide for me by seeking success on his terms? Dying to myself and my need for that kind of success as a musician? Would I cling in my heart instead to the true success he promises to give me, both now and forever? Well, how about you? I know some of you are musicians, too, so you can probably relate. Many others of you have connections to the academic world, which has similar issues. Or perhaps others of you recognize in these some of the struggles you face in your own work, or even in your own home. Whatever the sphere is in which you hope to gain or keep the support and affirmation of the people you hope or feel you need to impress, whatever that sphere is. The former InterVarsity campus staff worker and evangelism specialist, Max Stiles, has some particular words for those of us serving in Christian ministry, too. He wrote, We all struggle in one way or another with a desire to be loved by the very ones who hate the cross, even those of us who are serving in Christian ministry. We need to ask ourselves, scorn of the world, Success drives pragmatism. 
Pragmatism never asks the question, how do we die for Christ? It only asks the question, what works and how many? Pragmatism, he says, elevates success, technique, and method over anything else. Pragmatism turns ministry into a business. It rarely is concerned about the integrity of the message, since ministry is more about style and method than substance and authenticity. And sadly, because success sells, pragmatism often goes unquestioned in the Christian community. So in dying on the cross for us, Jesus is more than just save us. Again, the Apostle Paul says that if we follow Jesus, we have been crucified with him. And in that sense, we no longer live for the things we used to. But Christ lives in us, and we have his identity as we receive the grace he offers us and live by faith. Brian Chappell puts it this way. Christ, he says, accomplishes God's purpose in our lives. He is the God who accomplishes all that we need, even as he is the man who understands all that we need and provides all that we need. Christ accomplishes God's purpose in our lives. A lesson I need to keep learning is to stop striving for success on the world's terms and embrace the identity I already have as a beloved child of God who has been brought into union with Christ through his perfect life and death. Because I'm united with him, his success is my success. Jesus wants to free us from the tiresome burden of trying to be a success the way the world defines it. So what about you? Jesus invites you, saying, I will give you rest. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let me close with the very last words of the very last book that John Stott ever wrote. He was writing this as he was nearing death after a long life serving the Lord as his master. He writes, On the one hand, we must not understate the glory of the life which is offered us in the gospel, the eternal life which is ours through faith in Christ, or the intensified life which is ours if we put to death the desires of our fallen nature, or the inward vitality we can enjoy in the midst of our physical weaknesses and mortality, or the fruitfulness promised to those who are faithful in their mission, or the comfort given us in the midst of persecution and in prospect of martyrdom, or most of all, the final resurrection life in the new creation. In all these ways, God has promised that those who die will live. John Stott continues, on the other hand, we must not understate the cost of the death which alone leads to life a death to sin through identification with Christ, a death to self as we follow Christ, 
a death to ambition in cross-cultural mission, a death to security in the experience of persecution and one of martyrdom, and a death to this world as we prepare for our final destiny. Death is unnatural and unpleasant. In one sense, it presents us with a terrible finality. Death is the end. Yet in every situation, death is the way to life. So if we want to live, we must die. And we will be willing to die only when we see the glories of the life to which death leads. This is the radical, paradoxical Christian perspective. Truly Christian people are accurately described as those who are alive from the dead. Friends, that's the true meaning of success according to Jesus. A success which brings joy that will go on lasting forever. Here are some words from the song that we will sing in response. O cross that I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for the everlasting life and honor that you promised to give us when we serve and follow you, offering to you our whole selves. Help us not to cling to our notions of success with which puff us up. Help us to root our understanding of success in the way that you define it instead. Help us to sense and see the glory and success of your love poured out for us on the cross and give us hearts to respond and offer back to you our whole hearts and our whole lives. In Christ's name, amen.